Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In this episode, we are going to re-examine the saga of the notorious Sad Puppies movement. We will ask, what happened? What ripple effects did it have on the sci-fi fantasy community? Did we learn anything from this? Should we learn anything from this? And is there more to the story than the official narrative? Joining us is Kurt Schiller, editor of Bloodknife Magazine. Kurt, you've been mulling over this story for a long time. Why is that? What is there left to say? Apparently a lot. I think the thing that interests me about the sad slash rabid puppies saga and its consequences are that it's still for, I think, a variety of reasons, looms quite large in the minds of people in sci-fi and fantasy fandom, especially if you're talking about the kind of awards fandom or the sort of fan who pays attention to the Hugos and and the Nebulas. And it's very unusual, I think, the extent to which people still really talk about and fixate on it at times, given the extent to which it was basically a a right-wing movement that was beaten pretty unequivocally yeah. uh, and has kind of faded off into the sunset. And yet we it, it still crops up in discussions all the time, which means at least or suggests to me that there's still something there worth, worth hashing out. All right. So why don't we just sum it up as the story as it's generally understood. The story, at least as I understand it, is that the sad puppy slash rabid puppy movement, if you want to call it that, was kind of like sci-fi fantasy publishing's version of Gamergate. The way I understand it is that a bunch of right-wing reactionary writers got mad at how diverse and liberal the genre's gotten. So they harassed some diverse or liberal authors to try to push them out of the industry. They pulled some kind of shenanigans to try and fill the Hugo nominations with their pre-selected slate of works and authors. Um, writers involved included the truly odious Fox Day, uh, <laughs> really a psychotonic early 90s pop group. I, oh God, John De La Rose, who has a history of kind of gross harassing behavior and I believe has been banned from cons because of it. Larry Correa, uh, Brad R. Torgerson, Sarah Hoyt, some of their targets. I know John, John Scalzi was a target. I, I know they were very mad about N.K. Jemison. Um, who else? Who, like, they, Were there any specific people that they were super mad about? The author, I heard her name escapes me now, the author of The Dinosaur Story, If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love. Yes, uh, right. She she got a lot of flack, even though, and I certainly have my own thoughts on the story, but it is kind of weird given the story didn't actually win an award in, in the category it was nominated for, mm-hmm. but still attracted a ton of attention from chuds, uh, essentially, right. who, who took it up as a cry decor right. for their grievances. Right. 
So one of their very big complaints, obviously, was political. They're saying contemporary SFF is is too diverse and it's too obsessed with identity politics and it's too liberal. But there was also a complaint about style. A lot of them say they want to return to sort of a golden age pulp style. They want more of an appreciation of military, sci-fi, stuff like that. And I know there was an internal split. Some were a lot more vicious than others, like that you have sad puppies and then rabid puppies who are the ones who are a lot meaner. Yeah, so I'll I'll say up front that a lot of my understanding of this is cribbed from Liz Sandifer's excellent long-form essay, Guided by the Beauty of Their Weapons, which recounts these sad-slash-rabid puppies saga, and she's a really good recounter or uh, documenter of alt-right figures and their behaviors. She had uh, a really great book of of essays a couple years back called Neo Reaction, a Basilisk, which talks a lot about people like Mencius Moldbug and and the kind of whole dark enlightenment Neo Reaction guys. And so she also did a piece on the sad puppies. And so I'll say up front that a lot of my a lot of my understanding is cribbed from her essay and that if you want a much more in-depth uh, write-up of it, you should frankly just go read that. The basic grievances and the basic thing that happened was more or less what you said with I think the added the added focus that it was specifically a complaint that basically SJWs were rigging awards to to force these kind of more diverse more progressive stories that that explicitly centered more progressive themes at the expense they said of traditional sci-fi and fantasy narratives and uh Brad Brad Torgerson was the kind of person behind the sad puppies and then Vox Day was the person behind the rabid puppies. And it's unclear to what extent they were coordinating. Liz Sandiford notes that their logos are basically like identical and were designed by the same artist that they, they released within like a day or two of each other. So it's I, not- I think they do claim sometimes like, oh, no, we, we don't condone what the meaner people are, but that yeah. could be a whole lot of bullshit. And no, we don't condone it, but we're not going to interfere or ask them to stop. You know, yeah. So one of those things. Yeah, it's it's like uh like the sad puppies are kind of like a stalking horse for the rabid puppies, where the rabid puppies are just coming out and saying the slurs, um, and the sad puppies are are kind of like, well, we're just asking questions. Um, we just but, want I mean, ideological diversity. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because their complaint was not um their their, their complaint is frankly really stupid. If you take it <laughs> if you take it at at face value, their core complaint is that sci-fi and fantasy used to just be big strong men swinging clubs and cool guys shooting lasers and that literally one of the main complaints that Brad Torgerson made in his kind of like manifesto is mm. it used to be that you could open up a book and look at the cover art and know that it was going to be about just about spacemen because there were spacemen on, on, on the cover. And now you open it up and you're hit in the face with diversity. SJW is trying to sneak things in. And, and again, he's the more on, on face value trying to act moderate. So he very much goes in kind of like, we're not against that. We just want but very much like the Gamergate thing where it's like, it seems suspicious that these are all popular now. Whereas the rabbit puppies are, are, are that plus they're saying just outright super racist fashy stuff about how it's you know a a left-wing conspiracy to overtake media blah 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 and the actual thing that they wound up doing was so for a couple years 
they tried to organize voters to get one of their preferred nominees into the Hugo finals, I think starting in like 20, 2013. And they weren't, as, as far as I can recall, they weren't successful at that. But then in 2015, instead of just pushing for one novel, they said, well, wait, here's a whole here's a whole slate of people that you should uh, of works that you should uh, nominate in each category. And the Hugos being that like the number of nominations that they receive are actually not overwhelmingly large. It's a really um, small amount when you think of when you look into it. Yeah, it's only like in the biggest categories, the the top nominated one tends to only have like between 100 and 200 nominations. And there's definitely ones that are getting into the finals with like 25 to 30. So, of, of course, they were able to basically sweep the nominations and they managed to get a ton of, you know, not it's not it's not that all the works were like far right, but they were selected by these kind of goofy chuds a lot of them were published by vox day's imprint and the end result was basically the finalists were dominated by the works that they had picked they totally steamrolled everyone else and the ultimate outcome was that basically all the categories got awarded no award because nobody wanted to vote for their crap so it's basically what wound up happening essentially you used the word conspiracy you did mention that one of their accusations is that there's sort of a conspiracy to determine who gets on the hugo and nebula finalists and what works get hyped and what works don't there might not be a conspiracy but do you think it's possible that there oh hello cat that there (laughs) is sort of an in-group and an out-group I mean, that I mean, there definitely. is a dominant yeah. style and that there is an inner circle of important, influential people. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I and and that was certainly one of their criticisms. I think I would question with them the extent to which they were sincere in that and the extent to which that was just like. Kind of like, oh, I'm just concerned of, about uh, g- yeah. g- g- integrity in gaming journalism. Like, okay. I'm, yeah, and, what, and, and this is this is what <laughs> I think is funny is there absolutely are coordinations between people now to nominate certain works. Like, I think that that's a pretty uncontroversial claim. And I don't know that I would call it a conspiracy, but people certainly coordinate to try to marshal votes for particular works that that absolutely happens. I remember Mm. a mutual friend of ours shared an Excel spreadsheet that was like a big list of recommended works to nominate that was kind of crowdsourced, but also kind of had some editorial oversight. So people are absolutely organizing, at least now, to, to do this. I don't actually know if they were doing that before the sad slash rabid puppies came along and did the same thing. So it's, it's kind of like, it's to me, it's, it's an open question whether this was a self-fulfilling accusation that they made or whether this was always going on. They specifically basically made the Gamergate argument that there was money and influence, like changing hands under the table. Specifically, they they said that tour was behind it all, which, which I don't, I don't agree that it's like that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't agree that it's like, it's an organized conspiracy with shady taskmasters lurking behind the scenes. But I absolutely think that organically speaking, there's a dominant style. There's a dominant group of call them influencers, if you will. It's certainly not just like people saying, I like these couple works and I'm going to nominate them. It's, there's absolutely a lot of marketing and, and you know advertising that goes into these things for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So why don't we talk about the dominant style? If we look back in sci-fi and fantasy, we can name certain movements, certain creative movements like cyberpunk or the new wave or the golden age or this or that. But I feel like we don't have a name for what the big trendy style is. But when I look at a lot of what gets published, and I don't mean all of it, not every single story, but a whole lot of stories do seem to fit this similar style, but there's no name for it. And it's very strange that there it's nameless. I think one of our one of the members of our Discord, uh, Dr. Vibes, called it Squeecore, <laughs> which I really, really like as a name. But something I've noticed reading a lot of published sci-fi fantasy stories is that they follow this particular template, which is person of ex-marginalized identity is plagued by outsiders and also some kind of supernatural unpleasantness, like there's a monster or some kind of uncontrolled superpowers. It's usually a metaphor for their marginalization in some way. And then something transformative happens, they gain confidence, they learn to harness the supernatural thing to use to their advantage, and then they defeat the oppressor and become basically a superpowered supernatural crusader for social justice. It really follows the template of a superhero origin story. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It it's a very cathartic type of story, but the fact that it's ubiquitous and that it's very similar and that so many stories follow that particular pattern, it gets kind of samey and kind of boring. And yeah, in terms yeah. of politics, I don't think it really serves as a useful blueprint for for real world experiences. Like, um, say, what if your axis of marginalization is mental illness? How well can you really harness mental illness without engaging in self-destructive behavior, you know, like I, this might be a controversial statement, but I don't see mental illness as overall a strength. I think it can make you see the world in a way that's different and, and that can be a good thing and you can use it to fuel art and it gives you a unique perspective. But I would say overall living with a mental illness is a hell of a lot harder than living without it. <laughs> it's yeah. not a superpower. <laughs> it's not great. Yeah. It's uh, not yeah, much and fun. It sucks. I, I agree completely with kind of that being the template. And I think what I want to stress is that's not, like you said, that's not, a, there's nothing wrong with that template. I personally don't care for it. And it's certainly nothing especially new. That kind of triumphalist message fiction has been around for a long time of that kind of, and then everyone clapped type story. There's nothing new about that. And there's nothing inherently wrong about it, except that I think that, a lot of the versions that we get now, I, I think, are very maudlin. And I would really like to see, this speaking from a personal level, I would like to see a lot more done with aesthetics and a lot less done with like, almost like marketing around around what the story contains and which is mm. I, I i go back and forth on on the term like squee like like i sometimes feel bad for raging against it but the thing that is true about it is that the way that a lot of the stories and their titles and their intros seem to be structured is to generate an exciting like an excited response from people to be like oh like hell's yes you're telling me that that there's a story where a person of x marginalized identity does xyz hell yeah squee you know like that's mm. to me that's that's bang on and i almost wonder if it's it's definitely an aspect of the writing but i think it's also an aspect of what people or at least what a lot of people seem to look for now in 
science fiction, which is where you can hear the synopsis and be like, yes, that's something that I want to read. I'm excited about it from just the synopsis. And personally, I I, I, I don't give a flying fuck about the synopsis. I want the aesthetics and the structure and the prose oh, yeah. to be good. And a lot yeah, of the, the plot of a lot a story of the stories that important aren't... to me. If it's just beautifully written, that's a exactly. lot more important to me than the plot. I, I, I don't care about plot that much. Pure vibes. I can enjoy a story on vibes alone. Exactly. And it it really kills me sometimes when I read like some of the stories that people get so excited about from that kind of dominant style, where to me, it's just so you use the term in our pre-discussion kind of like maudlin. And it is it's very maudlin. And it's like there's very maudlin mawkish sentimentality. It's maudlin or glib. Those are the only two ways to deal with emotions. It's either got to be really mawkish sentimentality or some kind of Whedon-esque quip to undercut any any emotion that's too unpleasant and too strong and there's also a sense of humor that feels very stuck in 2005 cheese monkey <laughs> randomness wacky live journal style yeah humor is a rare is a rare skill i mostly don't possess it i think pe- most people mostly don't possess it and i think it's a big risk including humor in a piece of fiction because there's a good chance even if you've written a lot of fiction that you know unless you have written a lot of humor that you're not super good at it. And a lot of the humor I encounter in, in stories now is just very bad. bad. And it, it, it feels to me like it serves more to to comfort the writer and the reader with familiarity more than it is to actually be funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing that really that jumps out to me is I think a lot of the stories that get published and celebrated for dealing with a certain issue now tend to to be very desperate to let you know that the story is about that issue. Right. If it's not in the title, it'll be in the first couple sentences. Like very, very clear. Like, I need you to understand that you're about to read a story about XYZ, about voting rights or about mm. abortion. And again, I love stories that deal with political issues, but I like there to be a little bit more investment in the, the story before it's like, let me tell you what I think about something. <laughs> right. It's the difference between art that's politically charged and art that's just a glorified political cartoon where this yeah. character represents feminism and this character represents the patriarchy and then the the character that represents feminism pegs the character that represents the patriarchy or something like that it's very message stories i mean all art is political all art is political whether it intends to be or not but there's a difference between having your politics in your art, which is inevitable versus writing a story with the deliberate goal of, I am going to deliver this message. Here is a very, very, very cut and dried allegory. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that you can compare the original Candyman movie to the remake to really see this <laughs> happening. The original Candyman, obviously it's about racism. Obviously it's about social class and gentrification and, and, uh, and white the legacy of abuse and trauma yeah, the, like, yeah. The and it's about abuse, all of yeah. those things but i don't know if you'd really say that the candy man is an avatar of this so much as a spirit who's been affected by this versus in the remake where the candy man suddenly becomes this avatar of racial justice just unambiguously he gives a speech for tolerance <laughs> in the end and he becomes the good guy and he's basically like a, a, a scary superhero and and, and that's it and I mean, the remake wasn't too bad, but it wasn't quite as rich as the original where it had all these political forces in it, but it didn't give us a clean 
ending and it didn't give us a clean, this guy represents that and this lady represents that. And it, as, as a result, I feel like it's a much richer story. Yeah, it's it's exactly the sort of there's a tendency towards exactly the sort of allegory that J.R.R. Tolkien complains about, where it's like th- this story has no meaning as a story. It's merely meant to be a cutout for, uh, as you say, it's supposed to be a one to one for something else. So you know, Sauron isn't really Sauron. He's actually just like Adolf Hitler. Saruman isn't isn't really Saruman. He's actually the captains of industry. It's like well, no, it should be it should be a story first and foremost, and it can pull in themes that make the same points. But, you know, if you want to write an essay, just just write the essay. I love essays. I publish a lot of them. Yeah, they're good. It's It just turns into a Ben Garrison cartoon, really, where yeah, everything and, is labeled. And the one of the things that puzzles me is, and, and this is something that I don't know if this is connected. Like, I could take a very uncharitable tack and, and say that this is somehow connected, but I don't know if it is. I, I think there's been a real retreat in a lot of popular sci-fi and fantasy short fiction away from more complicated prose formalism and mm. experimentation with structures and form. Like I, I feel like you see a lot less um you still see a lot of stories that are are on the order of like you know, a a story as listicle or a story as Wikipedia entry. Yeah, there's um, a ton of listicle stories. Yeah, but you don't get so much of the things where it's like, I'm just going to completely deconstruct what a paragraph could mean and just have words exploding all over the place. And, and I'm going to completely throw grammar out, out the window and just do weird stuff that's meant to be more evocative and, and aesthetic than it's actually meant to be telling a story. And it feels like there's been a real retreat from that into just prose that is... Not necessarily, not that it's like Spartan exactly, but it's very yeah. much like I'm telling you the story, this person did this, they felt this, this happened. Like there's will be some emphatic adjectives a lot of the time is, is about is about as over the top as you get in terms of aesthetics and, and style. Whereas mm-hmm. oh, I feel and like present tense, they, you exactly, yeah. present tense. That's very important. That means um, it's deep. I, I love, say this I as love, a person who uses tense, the present yeah. tense, there needs to be a reason. Yeah. There needs to be a reason. If you're just using it because I, I like the way it sounds, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> there needs to be a there should be a conscious choice behind this and there should be a reason behind this choice. That is yeah. my that is my hot take today. <laughs> I, I I think I will have to revisit some of the things that I've written because I don't know that I ever make a, I, I mean, I definitely make a conscious choice, but I don't know mm-hmm. that I, I usually have a whole lot of thematic reasoning for it. I just think that when I write in past tense, I think I just it just sounds bad. I, I think I'm just a bad writer with past tense and I need more practice with it. So so mm-hmm. it, it is avoiding something that I should improve at. But yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. There's a lot of things that are done without like considerations towards like what's the stylistic impact? What's the impact on on yeah. the reader? A, a, a big thing is, again, there's, it feels like there's less room for discomfort about what's going to happen or what the story might be about. It's very middle brow stylistically, I think, where it's not bad exactly, but it's not terribly interesting or innovative or exciting. Mm-hmm. It's solidly middle brow. And it doesn't do that thing that a good pulp novel does, which is get out of its own way so that we can watch yeah. the plot. 
and and it doesn't even have i mean pulp can still have really terrifically fun style of course hp lovecraft's writing style is terribly pulpy and purple but at the same time kind of fun to imitate mickey spillane he's pure pulp but that hard-boiled noir detective style is just a terrifically fun voice and there's not Mm -hmm. much that i can say about writer voice that's that really excites me yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned H.P. Lovecraft because I've definitely read a lot of modern H.P. Lovecraft pastiches, and none of them go even a third as hard as as he actually does in his prose. He which goes which to so me, hard, and it's terrible yeah. and awesome at the same time. It's which, the most which, ridiculous like, bullshit. It rules. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like reading early William Gibson, where it's like. It, if you are a new writer, do not please do not do this. It will be really bad. Tr- try it and practice it, and then eventually maybe it will be good. But it's mostly bad. But when it works, it works. But the fact that pastiches of those styles nowadays tend to be way toned down suggests to me that that it's it, there. There must there has to be like it's just, it's just not in vogue to write like that right now. Yeah. Even if you are trying to evoke that writing explicitly, yeah. Yeah. Now let's turn to the idea of an in-group. We've got, there is a dominant style and I'm, for the purpose of this discussion, I'm calling it squeakor. And I don't believe that there's a conspiracy to keep squeakor in power. I don't believe there are some people in a smoky room or this is sci-fi, so it's probably going to be a vape clouded room (laughs) rubbing their hands together, cackling. But the publishing industry and that includes genre, that includes science fiction and fantasy, absolutely is hierarchical uh, or hierarchical. There absolutely is a hierarchy and it is very cloistered. And while the dominant clique might be more diverse than it used to be, and that's a good thing, there is still a dominant clique. There is still a hierarchy. There is still an in-group and an out-group and strict hierarchies inevitably lead to abuse simply because there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So let's talk about a little bit about this hierarchy and how it comes into play. Yeah, I I think as you say, I think a lot of it is just kind of happens organically. There's certainly people who are friends at the highest levels of sci-fi and fantasy. And it makes sense that if you are a top of the heap sci-fi fantasy writer, you're going to be friends probably with other people who are similar. So there's naturally going to be a clique of some sort. And you naturally want to help out your friends and help boost their help boost their work and help publish them and, and get acclaim. I don't think anything in that rises to the level of immorality, but I do no. think the effect is people tend, I think, to boost people with similar sensibilities to their own. And whether it's good or bad, if you look at, at kind of what that dominant click was 15 years ago and what it is now, it's a very different click with a very different style. Again, whether it's good or bad, it feels like there's a hesitancy now to even acknowledge that there could be a dominant style or that there could be a clique of successful writers that are effectively like influencers within sci-fi and fantasy. And I do think part of that does come from the fact that a lot of these people in this dominant clique, in, in this dominant style, their personal brand was always, I'm marginalized, I'm pushing back against oppression, what happens when you're on top of the heap? How 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 do you frame yourself as, oh, I'm this poor put upon person? Well, you've won. But if you acknowledge that you've won, now you can't talk about how you're powerless because you're not. Now you have to acknowledge that you do have power. 
and that's damaging for your personal brand. I yeah. think. It's it's also just like a new way of there's an aspect that is comforting to being the underdog. Yeah, we all love an underdog. We all love to root for an underdog, even if you're not the underdog. Like Trump always put himself as an underdog and his fans always saw themselves mm -hmm. as the underdogs. Oh, someone's always trying to keep us down. All of the, the whoever they are is always trying to keep us down, even when it's like, bro, you won. You got everything you want. How are you still doing this? But it works. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it works and it does cause a very strange like psychological discord when when you want to still be that way, but your position now precludes that. So for instance, the comic writer Gail Simone, I, I remember a few months ago I saw her clap back at somebody on Twitter who questioned some statement that she had made about comic book writing, hmm. where she was like, Why don't you let the person who's been writing comics for years and years figure this one out? And it's like, okay, but but Gail Simone literally got her start throwing darts at the comic book establishment that was literally how she got started in the industry and how she became prominent was criticizing the people who did it for a living so maybe you should be a little bit more open to accepting pe people who are who are on the outside looking in taking a few shots at you yeah and this kind of look at me i'm marginalized i'm a victim thing can get really ridiculous there was an instance in which sarah dessen she's this best-selling very wealthy ya author painted herself as the victim because some kid in a college was quoted as saying she didn't want one of Sarah Dessen's books on the official reading list. So Sarah Dessen, a very wealthy, white, well-connected, successful, best-selling author, portrayed herself as the victim of some random college kid. Yeah. And, and launched basically this massive harassment campaign against some random person who no one had ever heard about. And it was very strange seeing these powerful, entrenched, other famous, well, famous-ish women writers going, oh, poor Sarah, poor you, it is, you're this victim of misogyny. Said, well, the person who made fun of her was also a woman. And the person, what the the fuck is happening? <laughs> it was yeah. very strange and very confusing and very ridiculous. Yeah, and it was it stuff like that really to me uh, again speaks to the fact that there is a literary clique either de facto or yep. like specific. I, I don't know that everyone is in a group DM together, but certainly when <laughs> somebody gets attacked, they, they probably are in a group DM together. Honestly, I though, I, I mean, I certainly judging, judging certainly by the kidney story, there are some serious group DMs that everybody's in together, just shit talking. It yeah, exactly. Kind of fun, honestly. Yeah. It's like it's like if somebody raises the alarm, other people who mm -hmm. are also powerful, influential writers are going to jump in. And especially on social media, that has a huge outsize impact. And and so bringing that back around, I think, to the criticism that the sad puppies and rabid puppies were making, do I take them at face value that that was really their issue? No, not at all. Of course not. Fuck them. They're absolutely just using it as like a stalking horse to basically say, mm -hmm. well, I, you know, I want to say slurs and I think that I want more misogyny in my sci-fi and fantasy and I want big, strong military men who, who mm -hmm. go on colonial expeditions. I'm 100% confident that is their real goal and the real thing that kind of chafes their balls about it. But, but at the same time, whether you believe that that's really their criticism, I think that is a valid criticism. And that's probably why they used it because there is a little bit of truth to that, as uncomfortable as that is. One of say. those instances where the worst person yes. you know just made a valid point. You're like, shit. Because there is an in-group. You do see 
it's a group of people at the top boosting their friends or boosting their their mentees, and there's a real strong tendency to ignore the works, oftentimes the very interesting work of anyone who's not in this little clique. Yep. You can absolutely see what stories get boosted, what stories get buzz, and which ones don't. And it's not what resonates with readers, but it's like, well, I met this, I, I'm kind of friends with this person, so that's the one that gets up. And it's, and when you see writers breaking in and getting attention for their work, I think there's almost a violent, adverse reaction to it of of fear. There's either an attempt to freeze it out or an attempt to demonize them. I, I think that is part of what happened to Isabel Fall. I think that's part of what happened to Aunt Amelie Wenjiao. These were women writers of marginalized identities who were getting that buzz, who were getting that attention without the permission of this dominant clique. So they had to be put in their place almost. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that you can make an argument that the absolutely the effect is to put people in their place or to try to put people back in their place. I think you could make the argument that that's not even necessarily the intent, but the fact that they are from the out group, I think means that their actions and their fiction gets interpreted less, less charitably. But where it's like, if there's any ambiguity, people will latch onto that and say, well, what do they really mean by this? What did this, yeah. what does this actually signify? Whereas obviously if some, you know, nobody expects that N.K. Jemison is going to write an alt-right story <laughs> that's like secretly like a fash story. Yeah. That's not going to, so I, I think it's fair to say that she would get a fair bit more leeway in what themes and approaches she could use to a story than a relatively unknown writer could regardless of what the intention was. And the other thing is policing, it absolutely has the effect of policing content is what the effect is and policing yeah. who can contribute to sci-fi and fantasy. And neither of those things are inherently bad, right? Like policing content is good. If you see someone writing fashy stories, you should absolutely call them out and say, fuck this person. You should absolutely go after them. We don't want those people writing it and contributing to, to the community, they should be policed out of it. That's good. The, the question is what and who gets policed and ultimately by whom? That's the real focus. Because if it's people getting pushed out for writing stuff that sucks, then hey, great. If it's people who get pushed out for writing stuff that just happens to be challenging, well, that, that really sucks and something needs to be done about that. Something I'd also like to bring up about the in-group and the out-group is that there is very much a social class barrier to mm -hmm. being part of the clique, part of the in-group. One of the things that helps you join this in-group is networking. And these are in-person networking events, going to cons, which cost money. And one enormous networking event is these writers retreats and writing workshops, SFF, writing retreats and writing workshops. There are private writing retreats in Martha's Vineyard that are about $1,000 for a week. One of the really big ones, it's Clarion, and there's another one on the West Coast called Clarion West. It is a six-week-long writing workshop. It costs $5,000. People forge relationships there and make really, really powerful connections there. And if you examine the winners and nominees and finalists of Hugo's and Nebula's, you're going to find that there is disproportionately higher numbers of Clarion grads on it than, than non-Clarion yep. grads. Yep. There is unarguably a disproportionately high percentage of Clarion grads on there. Now, there is 
a scholarship you can get to go to these. But I think that for many people, the big sticking point is how do you take six weeks off of work? Yeah. Yeah. Most people can't do that. (laughs) So effectively, you are putting a really big, significant class barrier here. Yeah, in exactly. between, it's a sieve. In, in, in the way. So if you are a normal person, a working class person, or even just like a normal middle class person, most middle class people can't afford to, to miss that many paychecks in a row. Most yeah. middle class people don't have that much paid vacation, probably couldn't get authorization to take off that long. So the, the voices that are going to make it in are going to be voices that have a certain degree of economic privilege that most people don't have. And I think that's uh, kind of problematic. I think that's really worrying if these are the only people that we're going to get to hear from. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I do feel like SFF has started priding itself on its ability to uplift outsider voices. And as always, as you say, that has a somewhat invisible class dynamic where it's like the c- class and identity intersect in funny ways. It's very frequent, I-, I will say, if you're online to hear somebody talking about how poor they were during college. And it's like, well, I was eating nothing but ramen during college. And it's like, OK, mm-hmm. well, is that because you were poor or is it because you decided to be a reasonable adult and not ask your parents for a bunch of money to live a life of luxury like while in college? These are not the mm-hmm. same thing. I, I would never portray myself as being poor. I, I didn't grow up yeah. poor. But I, I could absolutely say- There's a difference between say, broke and poor. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I could absolutely say, oh, well, I spent X number of years working retail jobs. I only earned $7 an hour, blah, blah, blah. I could absolutely do that song and dance and, and claim to have been- truly working class, but that would be bullshit. And I do think that a lot of the quote unquote working class perspective that we wind up getting in SFF is is kind of coming through in similar means that I think are not always entirely on the up and up, I would say, for exactly that reason. And you, you mentioned the high percentage of Clarion grads that wind up getting nominated. There was an article I know in um, F... Uh, blah, blah, the blah, Magazine blah. of Fantasy yes. and Science Fiction recently. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that purported to break down some of these statistics. And I, I remember the analysis was, just was something like, well, only only one third of the nominees are are Clarion grads. So that's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> how many what? how many Clarion grads are there versus how many sci-fi and fantasy writers are there total? That's a lot of people. Right. That's maybe a hundred, two hundred, a couple hundred versus thousands and thousands. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a like disproportionately saying- high percentage. Yeah, that's like saying, well, only half of all presidents have gone to Ivy League schools. And it's like, well, yeah, have only like 12 There's of them. Plenty so. of room. There's plenty of room for you peasants. Yeah. It's fine. And somebody made the point, and I don't remember who, but I'm just going to steal it, that there's nothing inherently bad about saying if you go to Clarion, you will be more likely to wind up getting nominated for awards. That's not inherently bad. In fact, right. you would kind of expect that for something that's an expensive investment of time. Yeah, it's five thousand dollars. You better you, know? buy, you better get something out of it. <laughs> like it's 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 more it's more the the hesitancy to acknowledge that and to own that. Yeah. And say, well yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely it does give you a, an advantage. And it should. Yeah, that's what's weird about it. Not that it exists. Like, of course it exists. Of course these networking things exist. Of course there are private clubs. Of course people look out for their own. That's how it is in every single industry. But it's the refusal to acknowledge it. 
It's this violent anger when you dare to bring it up. People get incredibly offended. And I find that very strange Mm -hmm. from people who are supposedly concerned about diversity. Guess what? If the only queer people you allow to get their voices heard are people who can afford to take six weeks paid vacation, then you're hearing a very, very narrow Mm -hmm. and very non-representative sample of, of queer voices. And to connect this back to the topic of of discussion, the puppies, I, I do think that that is part of the shadow that it has cast, is to give this sense that sci-fi and fantasy is under siege in some sense mm-hmm. from people who want it to be reactionary again. And or Certainly there are. Certainly there are a lot of people. But I think oh, yeah. for the time being, they've been pretty vanquished. After 2015, they didn't really run the campaigns again. Um, yeah. You know, what the fuck is they, Vox Day even doing? He's kind of I angrily no posting. I, I don't. I've heard his blog maybe got taken down, but I don't know. He should he's, make some he's, more he's music. A, nobody. He should make some more music. He was a he much make better. Some more, he should get Psychotonic better, back together. Yes, he was a much better music producer than he was sci-fi <laughs> writer. Um, I quite like Psychosonic for, for, for all that I have to go. Oh yeah, there's Welcome Vox to Day. My with, mind. Yeah, he should he should go back to that. But yeah, and and I think the reality is the SJWs, and I consider myself an SJW very much so, have won. We have progressivism has won within sci-fi and fantasy mm-hmm. by and large. I would say it's a lot more liberal than I would like. No, yeah, it's not, not properly it's, leftist. Yeah, it's not exactly yeah. under siege from reactionary forces. Certainly there are a few, but they tend to get stomped down. The, yeah. Again, the, the problem is who else winds up getting falling under the boot that's doing the stomping, uh, as it were. And I, I think that there is an extent to which people need to acknowledge that that the sad puppies are not going to come back in 2022 and, and run the slate again. For one, they changed the rules mm-hmm. at the Hugos in particular, where voting blocks like that, you like group, you, you can't nominate groups of authors all from the same block like that anymore. The same work can't be a finalist in multiple categories. They did a lot of changes to, to stop them. And again, one of the things that I think gets overlooked is that the sad puppies and rabbit puppies both technically failed. Like they managed to get mm-hmm. all their nominations on on the on the final ballots. Uh, but, but no one won, right? No they one just won. got a no award. Yeah, they said, well, no, fuck these people, which is what should have happened. So yeah. to me, the takeaway shouldn't be like, we need to be perpetually vigilant. And the price of vigilance is being a shithead to some people. It should be like, oh, we actually came together and, and pushed these assholes back out. And, and that's good. And we can do it again if needs be. <laughs> So let's move on and talk a little bit about critiquing fiction. Something I've noticed, I don't know if this is a result of of this puppy saga or if this is just something that was happening organically anyway. Something I've noticed, one of the complaints that that many involved with the puppies said was that everything's purely about political correctness and it's not about did you enjoy the story or not. 
I'm sick of political stories. I want it to be less political. Now, obviously, that's a bullshit claim. But something I have noticed is that when we are critiquing stories in science fiction and fantasy contemporary publishing, it seems like you can only really talk about the politics of it and are they good and are or are they bad. If you actually try to critique an author's style, an author's prose, the pacing, the writing quality in general, you're called a bully. Yeah, or, or and people do the other thing. Me. <laughs> or people do the other annoying thing and say, "Well, it's just not for you." And it's like, "Well, well yeah. That that okay. that may as well that that may be, but I'd like to think that I'm at least a little bit objective enough to say I don't like this because I don't like the writing and I think it could have done this instead. That's not the same as being like, "I don't get it." Which yeah. certainly I feel like people say, "I don't get it" more to the things that you and I probably like more. Than, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I know that some of your work has received responses like that of, I don't get it, which I certainly do. And I, I, I feel like it's weird. Yeah. Like it's almost taken a, a, as an insult to offer a verdict on like, is this well-written? Did the characters work? It's a very strange place that criticism has wound up in. And it's very anti-art to be honest, if you can't talk about writing quality, if you can only judge, well, uh, this person's problematic or this person's politics are good and that's it. Something that made me really sad is, I, I was it last year, I guess, or the year before? Times all slid together. But when a story of mine called The Fairy Egg came out, I was really shocked that the most thoughtful and incisive analysis and discussion about it was on 4chan. <laughs> that is not what I expected because I just... I, I don't Google myself anymore, but I did Google to see, okay, how are people reviewing this? What are people saying about it? And over and over again, I found something odd, which is that the people who had the most discussion about it tended to run conservative. And this isn't a pro-conservative story. The villain is basically a Jordan Peterson fan who who's this total abusive red pill husband. But I found it so fascinating that People on 4chan weren't going like, no, this person's just a leftist, this person's a feminazi, whatever. But they were saying, well, I don't know if the speculative elements fit. Maybe it would have worked better without the the speculative elements in it as a purely mimetic story. Like, I don't agree with that, but it is a critique about style and not on ideology. And that's saddening to me that if that's the only place you can go to have any kind of discussion about writing quality, any critique of style, that's really fucking bad news because people want to <laughs> have that discussion and they're going to look for a place where they can have that. If you want to discuss, say you want to discuss the, I wish you were a dinosaur, my love story. And if you try to critique the prose and say, honestly, I think this is pretty maudlin and you get called out for being prejudiced or whatever, even if you're pro, even if your critique is purely based on style well, where the fuck are you going to go? I guess I'll go to 4chan and talk about it I, with all these gross chuds because that's the only place I can go. Yeah, it's that <laughs> it's that whole thing of like um, liberals hate leftists and progressives more than they hate the right wing. And, and also, I, I think it's just that it seems to be seen as gauche to like actually offer a you know criticism of a particular story like it seems like the most let are... people enjoy things yeah exactly let me or, enjoy my consumer product experience uncritically unless something is deemed safe to dunk on in which case you can make all the little snide remarks 
about it that that you want. But yeah, yeah, people, and I will say, I've seen the exact same quality of discussion effect that you mentioned with the fairy egg, with a lot of the essays that we've, that Blood Knife has published that I've seen get popular. In particular, I've seen the best discussions on 4chan, Reddit, and uh, Hacker News, especially, and all three places, very reactionary. And we're talking about essays that were from an explicitly communist, very, very communist perspective, in particular, the one that I wrote about Ian M. Banks and your article, your excellent article uh, on the denuding, pardon the pun, of sexuality <laughs> from Hollywood blockbusters. A lot of the reaction that I saw from more you know, liberal and progressive sci-fi spaces was was either an accusation that whoever wrote this was thinking too a little bit too hard about this stuff. Maybe they should chill out, which always pisses me off. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, no, fuck you, buddy. That's the whole point of criticism is to think too hard about it. What are you Um, thinking? That's that we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to think about things. Or they would pretend that it was saying something other than it was, which I always find to be extremely uh, annoying. Whereas like, right. I got accused of ace phobia. Yes. I, I got accused of that or of skinny shaming. Yeah, most fucking <laughs> asinine criticism. I can't. Yes, I'm. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry <laughs> that the super, super duper jacked hundred millionaires of the Marvel Cinematic Universe might feel body shamed for being too jacked. I'm sure it's really hard to be too jacked. Yeah, I'm sure it's really uh, hard. <laughs> and very much the same thing that I saw with some of my articles on like Hacker News, where where people would say, obviously, I completely agree with the fact that this guy is a commie. But he has a point about what he says about this particular piece of art. I do think that that's what the author meant. And it's like, I I, I don't know why that is. I, I think part of it is just that maybe they're uh, stupid in a smart way, as it were. <laughs> Sometimes people who are prone to putting their foot in their mouth don't realize when things are gauche to say. And so they'll just make a, a criticism that in a more progressive space would be seen as rude. And so nobody would be willing to say it. And so they'll just be like, oh, yeah, I thought this instead of second guessing that and being like, well, maybe I should be the bigger person and not say this, which, again, if you're doing criticism, you don't need to try to dunk on people, but you have to offer an opinion. You can't just be like, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on a little bit and talk a bit about harassment. One of the biggest reasons that we needed to put down the rabid puppy movement the biggest horrible thing about them is that they harassed authors and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna question that yeah they were really fucking gross and awful to writers but something that strikes me is that sff is still harping on on these guys for being gross harassing jerks years ago but sffs as we can see is totally fine with harassment campaigns and engages in one pretty much once a month, usually against a woman. So it's rather frustrating how how selective it is, how, oh, these guys took part in this harassment campaign, so they have to be blacklisted from the industry. But, but when I took part in a harassment campaign against this other person, well, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I, I know I harp on what happened to Isabel Fall every other episode, but it... I think I harp on it so much because that was the moment when I lost respect for contemporary sci-fi fantasy and I just haven't regained it at all. I haven't seen a reason to regain it. I I already mentioned the Sarah Dessen incident, Gretchen Felker Martin and other outspoken trans women who make kind of edgier, darker, rougher material get really, really disgusting, creepy harassment campaigns directed at them. Amelie Wenjiao, who is a, a debut author, a Chinese woman, 
basically was made to publicly apologize for writing a novel that reflected Chinese culture too much, which I found completely yeah. a disgusting incident. There, there's the shit that happened to me. Uh, I got some really, really vicious harassment from yeah. people who were targeted by the rabid puppies and who've been holding that up as like, oh, I've been victimized. I, I, I triumphed over the haters, people who can who are still kind of milking that we're yeah. part of that harassment campaign egging it on while i was like getting death threats and hacking attempts and and stuff for a week yeah so obviously thing, harassment isn't a problem it's okay to do that yeah it's like it's the question <laughs> of who is deemed a fair target and i was fucking over the moon angry about the the way that especially that you were treated when, when people got pissed off about that like when i saw the you know, the the Mary Sue, fuck them, and mm -hmm. the article that they wrote, which was literally just a compendium of people weekly trying to dunk on you. It's like, yeah. what what is what is this if not just making a taxonomy of harassment and being like, yes, we're harassing someone and we think it's good, actually. Something um, that I'm going to point out about this, too, is so I got the harassment because I made a criticism of the stylistic choices of fan fiction. Fan fiction is overwhelmingly a white community. A fairly recent survey by AO3's users found that I think it was like 78% white. The percentage of Latinx users was in the single digits. So given that information, the whole thing takes on a very ugly tone to me. I, I mean, you've got someone, you've got a writer of the Puerto Rican diaspora being punished for not being deferential enough toward a Caucasian hobby. Yeah, and it seems like all that needs to be done to justify harassment of someone who is nominally an ally of the people who are doing the harass the harassing. Certainly, certainly the people harassing you have far more in common with you politically than they do with Fox Day is to say like, "Oh, well actually, whatever the intention, actually this is a reactionary statement it's not said by a reactionary it wasn't intended as reactionary but actually it's harmful and so everybody knives out yeah. which is just disgusting and it's very very the, the thing that makes me so incensed about the way that people in sff handle these things is that they'll they'll excuse so much with the best of intentions it's like oh well my intention wasn't to harass a woman for making a relatively innocuous statement. What I really just wanted to do was just I was like, well, yeah, but like you were being very shitty about it. Like that wasn't actually what you did. You didn't actually make a calm attempt to respond. You were just decided mm -hmm. to be shitty about it. That's not really the same as trying to make a good faith engagement. Right. It's, it's just harassment at that point. And there are some people who should be harassed. Nazis deserve to be harassed. Fox Day deserves yeah. to be harassed. But a woman who said that fan fiction writing fan fiction doesn't help you as a writer. Why does that deserve harassment? Whether you think that it mm -hmm. accidentally is, if you draw the box a certain way, it has certain aspects that might in some universe be slightly potentially similar to reactionary statements. Maybe you should just chill the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's something that's striking about her too, is that the target of these is almost always a woman and usually mm -hmm. a woman of a marginalized identity. But sometimes the harassment group's leaders have their own marginalized identity, too. And um, there's a great podcast called Champagne Sharks. They point out this is identical to the playbook that old alt-right guy, remember him, Milo Yiannopoulos used. 
You paint a target on someone, almost always a woman, usually a woman of a marginalized background. Let your followers really viciously swarm them and let them do the ugliest stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when you're criticized, claim, look, I can't be blamed for what my followers' behavior are doing. And and look, I'm marginalized too, so I, I can't be prejudiced. And then do it again. 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 And then do it again over and over and over again. And it's the same playbook in SFF over and over and over again, using little gross little sort of, I know the term dog whistles overused, but when you're calling a, I have noticed very often that when a Latinx author says something that the squeeze squad that the hive mind doesn't like, one of the adjectives trotted out is dangerous or yeah. unsafe or yeah. violent and calling latinx people violent and unsafe is a very very long running racial stereotype that has been used to justify horrible social repression i don't know if this is being done consciously or not but it really concerns me how quick people are to whip out these accusations of violence and danger when it comes to latinx authors Yeah, absolutely. And I think something I would add to that is that one of the ways that this sort of harassment has has uneven impacts is that people who aren't marginalized, who do have an institutional advantage, don't take the same damage or repercussions from the same sort of harassment or the same sort of outrage. So for instance, the execrable book, American Dirt, People were furious about it. They shit all over it about how it was written in the corniest, most racist, like pastiche of trying to be Latinx as possible. It was completely inauthentic. It was bad. It was corny and hack. And basically just essentially it was just racist that had not an ounce of impact on the actual sales and success of the book. It was a very successful book because the author wasn't really a marginalized person, didn't wasn't on the outside, didn't depend upon not being attacked to be able to survive. They had a multi-million dollar marketing and ad campaign behind their book. So who cares if a bunch of people said that they were a racist mm-hmm. shithead? Like if you you can harass two people equally and if one is marginalized and the other isn't, the marginalized person is by far going to have the bigger right. actual fallout from it because the other person is going to have institutional advantage. That means that they can just be like, oh, well, call me mm-hmm. a shithead. Doesn't matter. I'll be over here crying into my millions of dollars. Right. And it and it's deeply disturbing and frustrating that sci-fi, I think, hasn't moved on from the sad puppies because the conversation about harassment is always about reactionary chud harassment. And that's not, I think, the dominant force that's happening in the industry currently. And, and the only harassment mobs that people will actually deal with is when it's coming from this one particular yep. segment. And that's not to say, oh, we should tolerate right-wing harassment. Oh, obviously not, but I don't think we should tolerate any of it. And we very clearly do. None. I don't think any of the people who drove Isabel Fall back into the closet have suffered any kind of consequences to their careers. They're, they're still winning awards. They're, they still get to be held up as voices for social justice in the mm-hmm. publishing industry. And that's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. They just made a whoopsie daisy that went on yeah. for over a year before most people made statements. And some people, I genuinely think that some people 
learned something from that, but it's a pretty shitty way to learn something at the expense of, you know, someone who didn't deserve any of that and who suffered considerable consequences. It's a pretty bad way to learn when maybe you could just listen to people who say that you're being shitty and not go harass people and claim right. that they're secret Nazis because of their birthday. Like, yeah. And it's not like I think you or I want people to suffer consequences necessarily. It's not like, oh, you fucked up. You deserve to suffer. It's like, well, well no, but it is conspicuous that yeah, nobody did. That is an interesting outcome. And the, the way that we perceive what the consequences of harassment are and the way that sci-fi in a lot of ways has, I think, failed to self-police its own. While it's done, a, it's done a good job of policing people trying to bring reactionary politics back into it. But I think there's been a general failure or discomfort of, of policing its own. Yeah. And that's the only context in which I will say that policing is, is good. Self-policing is, is good. <laughs> the, the fact that you can tacitly associate people with a movement that fizzled out years ago effectively and still get some mileage out of it is very strange. And I think is something that sci-fi needs to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That you can take part in a harassment mob that drives a trans woman back into the closet, but you can still milk your own victimhood because Vox Day made some mean tweets at you, Mm -hmm. what, seven years ago. And likewise, likewise, (laughs) I think it's, it's worth, it's worth disconnecting the stylistic critiques that sad puppies made from in good faith stylistic critiques that might be made now uh, honestly even the sci-fi that they were criticizing isn't the sci-fi that's coming out now so it, the the fact that they sound similar doesn't mean that it's, it's a chud criticism it just means that as you said the the worst person you know maybe said something that was correct <laughs> right right and the trouble is how do you push back against it because when you do make these these critiques any kind of aesthetic critiques you get you get dogpiled pretty bad Yeah. You get blacklisted from the industry almost. I know that when everything was going down, you had people messaging you. Yes. Telling you to basically fire me. (laughs) Yeah. There, yeah. There were a few people who, who DM'd me and it's very, that's, that's a very strange thing to do. And it's like the people who DM'd me were like involved in any way. They were just free floating shitheads with chaos energy who were like, I'm going to, I'm going to try to ruin someone's day for an online dog pile that I have nothing to do with. Terrible sort of person to be. Like <laughs> Gretchen says, uh, Gretchen Falker Merton says she got something similar. She warned her publisher that when they announced, oh, Manhunt's going to come out in such and such year, you are going to start getting phone calls and emails from some of the most deranged people imaginable saying that Gretchen Falker Martin is a murderer and a whatever and a this and a that, and you have to yank her books. She had to prepare them for that. And that is, in fact, what happened, that people were calling up demanding that Gretchen's book be dropped. Yeah. It's, because it's, her work it's is the lobster too bucket. offensive or something. And it's deeply, deeply disturbing that this is the norm. Not only that this is the norm for certain writers, but also that there isn't a conversation about it. There isn't a big acknowledgement of it, you know? Yeah, and something that's very bothersome about it is is also the fact that when it comes up, the people who I think it's fair to say are influencers in the sci-fi fantasy community 
usually disavow the worst actions of the people that only knew about something because they helped get the word out. So mm-hmm. honestly, exactly like what the sad puppies and the rabbit puppies did, where the sad puppies were somewhat more respectable and can say, well, we're just asking questions. We don't necessarily agree with those guys. Well, yeah, but you are running interference for them. And so you do probably have some responsibility for it. And I yeah. mean, in, in that case, it seems pretty, pretty clear that they had all responsibility for it. But but yeah, it's again, it's back to that thing of, well, I meant I meant, well, I didn't mean for this to happen. That was somebody mm-hmm. who I have no connection with who went and did the thing that I'm certainly yeah. not. I, again, it's not like they were crying at any tears over over when you were getting harassed. You know, yeah. they might have said like, I oh, I don't know. I don't for it to happen, but that, I'm going to do the exact same thing again to somebody exactly. else and then be very surprised when it happens again. Exactly. And then I'll do it again to somebody else. And then I won't mean for the other stuff to, okay, well, if it happens every time you do this, maybe stop doing this. Yeah, exactly. Maybe don't do this. Yeah, I'll be honest. There, there's a few things that I search people on. I name search people when they send pitches to Blood Knife. And among the obvious stuff, generally like reactionary stuff, if they shit talk socialism or leftism, g- generally I screen out anyone who has remotely re- reactionary politics. I also screen out people who have participated in kind of the shitty dog pilings that we have talked about t- today. Uh, so be aware. <laughs> I guess if you're going to pitch anything, the, the blood knife, don't be a shitty person. Yeah. Um, Honestly, that's probably a good way to filter out people who don't really have much of value to say. Honestly, that's true. That's true. If you're yeah, if you're the true. kind of person who feels the need to send death threats to a woman because she said I don't really like fan fiction, then I we don't need to hear your thoughts. Yeah, we don't need your thoughts. Your thoughts are bad. We don't need them. Okay. So why don't we wrap it up? Because it's been a little over an hour. Is there anything more you want to add? I touched on this before. And I'll just reemphasize it's it's an open question to me, whether the accusations that people were manipulating the nomination process through voting blocks, and coordination that the puppies made, whether those were kind of prophecies that came true after the fact, uh, well, I guess all, all prophecies become true after the fact, I guess, but, right. but whether they were things that only started happening because people looked at the somewhat successful attempt to do it by the puppies and went, oh, well, to push back on this, we need to organize our own our own mm-hmm. concerted efforts to nominate stuff that we think is good, which which, again, isn't isn't inherently bad, but it is a weird facet of it that it seems like people were just just kind of nominated stuff willy nilly before the whole puppies incident. And then after it, it was like, oh, actually, you can coordinate very effectively and get certain things nominated. Yeah, it's kind there of aren't a weird very many Hugo voters just because they're it. it, it it is at least 50 bucks to nominate. And most people aren't going to pay $50 to nominate for this. Yeah. Most people so, aren't going to do that. That's a lot of money. The fan art category in particular, like the the most nominated piece is, has like 14 nominations or something. And the smallest has like five or something like that in, yeah, in, in the most recent Hugo's. If you wanted to, you absolutely still could. You, you could get still five mess with it if you really wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. So psst, get five or 10 of your friends and nominate Blood Knife. And Raquel, and Raquel, yes. And yeah, nominate <laughs> nominate everyone is beautiful and no one is horny for best I don't know what category it would go in. I don't know. What uh, it would probably it would it would probably be like fan writing, unfortunately. I, I, oh no. I, I hate to tell you. That would rule, actually. I would love to get nominated for that and watch everyone shit themselves in rage. Probably not gonna happen though. 
Anyway, all right. So why don't we take it down? Where can our listeners find and support your work? Well, you can find my work primarily on bloodknife.com, which is where I I mostly publish other people's essays. I write my own essay about a, a few times a year. I will write some incredibly long, you know, convoluted, worse than the other stuff that I'm publishing essay. But that's where most of my writing goes, bloodknife.com. You can support us on patreon.com slash bloodknife. We put most of each issue up for free and then we gradually unlock it. But Patreon subscribers get the whole thing up front. We publish a lot of really good critical analysis. It's funny. We talked a little bit about kind of criticism of of uh, fiction. I, I There's only a couple pieces of fiction that we have published cr- criticism of, mostly because most stuff I just can't find anything interesting to say and, and nobody seems to have yeah. anything interesting to say, which is its own sort of criticism, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked Carlo's piece about the Goblin Emperor. The Goblin that, Emperor. That was, that was really good. That was really the good. The Small yeah. Emperor was a really good review. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, there's one or two other um, pieces of short fiction or longer fiction that we will probably be publishing things on in, in the near future. So, And the other place you can find my quote-unquote work is on the Right Good Discord, which you should uh, subscribe to and uh, support That's right. right Good on Patreon. And, and you should come talk about cool stories and and weird movies where gross stuff happens and nuns get up to hijinks with uh, stuff like that. (laughs) Nuns having fun. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a, a really cool discussion. And it's it's funny because I mostly, I have to say, this is pro- probably a, an interesting note to close on. I mostly missed the puppy stuff and it was happening. I had kind of checked out of the Hugos in like 2011 or 2012. And so I didn't pay attention again until around 2017. So I neatly missed all of that. Uh, so it was very confusing to me. And it was very edifying, I think, to go back and learn about it after the fact. And a lot of it made sense, not the criticisms, but mm-hmm. kind of, it was like, oh, yeah, that seems like something that was bound to happen. If we've really only scratched kind of the surface of the weird, shitty people involved, there's whole stories that you could talk about just the, the how weird Brad Torgerson and, and Vox Day are. Um, and I God, would, again- he, he is, Vox Day is just- He's a I don't, weird I don't dude. No, just I don't, weird. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. He's like he's like stupid Nick Land. Like, <laughs> just just um, Box Day. If you're listening, in which case I I hope he doesn't listen to this. But if you're listening to this, go back into music, dude. Just yeah, yeah. Do more psychosonic. Do more. Do, do more, more early do '90s more tech pop. More <laughs> synth pop. Less less anything else. Yes. Okay. Very much so. <laughs> Well, that is all for this episode. If you like what you heard, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash writegood. Subscribers get early access to regular episodes, bonus content, and an invitation to the Discord, where we hold group writing sessions and give each other feedback on our work. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R I T E G U D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>